Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. I'm delighted to welcome to this podcast Dr. Stephen Blair, professor at the Arnold School of Public Health at the University of South Carolina and one of the world's leading experts on the impact of exercise and health. Dr. Blair has done pioneering studies on the relationship of exercise to health, has published widely on these topics, has a variety of honors to his credit, and uh, as an example, was the senior scientific editor for the U.S. Surgeon General's report on physical activity and health. Steve, welcome. Thank you very much, Kelly. So this issue of exercise and health is something that everybody thinks about, at least to some extent. People understand that they should be physically active. But of course, there's a world of science that goes beyond that simple conclusion. Could you tell us a little bit about how that field got started and how one goes about studying the links between exercise and health? Yes, uh, physical activity and health research systematically began in the mid-1950s. Professor Jeremy Morris of the London School of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene is the man who invented the field, in in my judgment. He studied the London double-decker bus drivers and conductors and found that the conductors had much lower rates of heart attack and were less likely to die of heart attacks. They were climbing up and down the stairs of the bus all day. The drivers were sitting. Jerry first turned his attention to this because when he returned to England after World War II, where he'd served in the medical corps, uh, he noticed, as others noticed, that the heart disease rates were going up, and no one really knew why. And Jerry picked exercise as one of the things to study and made enormous contributions. He just died a couple of months ago. He lived to nearly 100 and was active and productive to the end. An amazing man. Now also at the, he also did studies with postal workers, didn't he? Yes, uh, after the drivers and conductors, he looked at postal workers and the clerks who were relatively sedentary had higher rates of heart disease than the postal carriers who of course walked around the rounds delivering mail. And then he went on to study British civil servants, and there people were sedentary on the job, but he asked them a bunch of questions about their leisure time physical activity, and the individuals who were more active in leisure time, again, had protection against heart disease and early death. And then following that, I know there were a number of other people who jumped into that field that Morris helped get started. One of them was an American, Ralph Paffenbarger, who did some very interesting studies as well. Could you tell us about that? Oh, sure. Paff was a was a great guy, and he led the field here in the United States. He did a lot with it uh, over the years. I'm proud to say he was uh, my mentor, my principal mentor. Enjoyed working with him uh, as well. He studied uh, San Francisco longshoremen and Harvard alumni. And he said, you'd be hard-pressed to find two more dissimilar populations, and yet both had uh, similar results for physical activity and death and and heart disease. The active ones were less likely to develop uh, these conditions. So before we get into what the current generation of research is showing, I know that today's research methods are much more sophisticated, and there's a level of inquiry that wasn't possible in those early days. Can you tell us about how, for example, you go about studying? these issues today? I've been fortunate to be able to follow a large cohort of about 80,000 men and women who received an extensive medical examination, including a maximal exercise test on a treadmill. So I have this measure of cardiorespiratory fitness, and that is determined principally by a person's exercise habits in the week's 
and months before the examination. So when we ask about physical activity, uh, we don't ask the right questions. People may not remember. Maybe some folks exaggerate a little bit. So having an objective laboratory measure has uh, probably brought something new uh, into the area. And now we have objective physical activity monitors that people are beginning to use as well. And just a bottom line from that, we find even stronger associations between fitness and mortality than we found from self-reported physical activity and mortality. And the reason is there's just too much error in the measurement of physical activity. So these more objective measures of either fitness or activity are finding that uh, inactivity is an even bigger health problem than we realized only 20 years ago or so. The, um, when you say objective measures of physical activity, are you talking about things like step counters? <clears throat> step counters and a slightly more sophisticated version we'd call accelerometers, but it uh, provides data on how much you move around. So you, you made this interesting point just a moment ago that leads me to, to ask the following question. You talked about sedentary behavior being a risk factor for disease and then physical activity correcting for that. So are those just opposite sides of the same coin, or are they somehow different from one another? It's not entirely clear at this point. Uh, there is an emerging line of research focusing specifically on sedentary behavior. For example, how many hours of TV do you watch? How many hours a day do you spend sitting? And some people are finding that that is predictive of diabetes and heart attack and early death, irrespective of your activity habits. In other words, even if you're physically active and you go for a walk every day, you're probably still advised to not sit too much. Now, that's not uh, an opinion that's universally held. And some people say, no, if, if you're getting the U.S. Physical Activity Guidelines recommendation of 150 minutes of walking a week. It doesn't matter. You can go ahead and sit the rest of the time. I still have a bit of an open mind uh, on this. I do think that not sitting so much, just getting up and moving around, and even if it doesn't prevent your heart attack, you're going to feel better for having done it. If you've been sitting at your computer hammering away for two or three hours, get up and take a three-minute walk. I think you'll feel better and I'm guessing perhaps even more productive when you come and sit back down at the computer. So I'd like to get to some nuts and bolts about how much physical activity is necessary to improve health, um, and then also what types of physical activity might be most beneficial. But before I get to that, how big is the impact of physical activity? How important is it when we look at overall health? Physical activity or inactivity or low fitness uh, are among the most important predictors of morbidity and mortality. Uh, in our research, where we have the objective measure of fitness, we find that low fitness accounts for more deaths in the population than virtually anything else we've measured. So inactivity is a very important determinant of health. Um, you mentioned not only things like morbidity and mortality are affected, but like with the aging populations, you and others have found some interesting things. Could you explain that? Oh, yes. The best insurance that you can get to stay out of uh, an old age home or a nursing home uh, where you're frail and feeble and incontinent 
is to be physically active. We are finding that activity improves brain health, reduces the risk of senile dementia as you get older, and it helps you preserve your function so that you can continue on with life's activities, uh, going shopping, going out to the, to, to the theater, or playing with your grandchildren in the park. So I imagine some people who are listening are thinking, well, it's the people who are capable of being physically active who are most likely to live long, a long time, and the physical activity might just be a marker for being overall more robust or something. Has that been addressed in the research? Uh, yes, Dr. Paffenbarger addressed this first, and then we followed a couple of years later. What we found, we looked at a, a group of 10,000 men who had two of these examinations I mentioned. So we could classify their fitness at the first exam and the second exam. So some of these men were unfit at the first exam. And they then, some of them, became fit by the second exam. So those who became fit cut their risk of dying in half. So it's kind of never too late. That's what Dr. Paffenbarger found uh, in middle age and beyond. Take up activity, improve your fitness, reduce your risk of dying. Uh, we've been part of a, a large um, a multi-center study, really just a pilot study, uh, in men and women 70 to 89 years of age who already have some mobility disability. We randomly assigned them to a successful aging or no exercise group or, or to do exercise, and those who exercised improved their ability to function in daily life. And even in that group, 70 to 89, uh, all with multiple chronic diseases, the serious adverse events were the same in kind of the education group and the exercise group. So it's never too late to start. It is safe to start. You can improve your function. And this study that I've just mentioned, which the four centers were a, a pilot study, we've just been funded now to do a full-scale study, which will have eight centers, and Yale University is one of those centers. The fact that you uh, you mentioned this just a moment ago, that being regularly physically active could cut your risk of death in half, is really a pretty striking finding. You're not talking about a 5% reduction in risk or a 10%. You're talking about a big impact. And that's uh, if you just uh, take up moderate amounts and intensities of activity. Uh, you asked a moment ago, how much activity do we think people should be uh, getting? In 2008, the federal government released a physical activity guidelines, the first ever official physical activity guidelines in the United States. And it starts with one simple statement, doing something is better than doing nothing. But then they said we recommend 150 minutes of moderate intensity activity, such as walking, each week, or 75 minutes of vigorous activity if you prefer vigorous sports or running. So that is kind of what I call the bedrock recommendation. 150 minutes of moderate intensity activity a week. And you can do this in bouts of 10 minutes or more. So three 10-minute walks a day, five days a week, get you this dose, and that is the dose that cuts the risk of dying in half. Now, if you go on to do more, the higher recommendation from the U.S. guidelines is 300 minutes of moderate intensity. And I think you drop uh, your risk of dying, let's say, another 10 or 15 percent. The biggest bang for the buck is going from doing nothing to something, 150 minutes a week. You know, you're too modest to, uh, to take credit for having made that initial discovery, but I've been citing your work for years and showing graphs of it that is really pretty striking 
where you find, like you just said, that the biggest benefit is going from having no activity to some activity, and that there's benefit beyond that. But that's really where the biggest public health bang for the buck is. And that's pretty affirmative news, isn't it? I mean, it's a nice positive message because it shows you don't have to be out running marathons to benefit from physical activity. Well, when we published our first report on fitness and mortality and saw that the moderately fit had a 50% lower risk of dying, that was news to me. That's not what those of us in the exercise science world thought at that time. Um, I'm a runner. I've run nearly every day for over 40 years. I've run several marathons, and that's where my mind was. But in 1989, when we published this report, I said, oh, my goodness, you get a lot of benefit from doing a whole lot less. And I think we're fortunate. That is a good public health message. We don't have to try to get everyone to take up running and uh, do marathons. Although I will say you get a little more benefit if you do a good bit more activity. And I don't think we quite yet know for certain, but it's possible that some vigorous activity might provide even additional health benefits. But again, the big bang for the buck is going from being unfit, doing nothing, to three 10-minute walks a day, five days a week. You've been mainly talking about aerobic-type activities, walking and running. What about strength training? Is that an important part of the picture? It is indeed. This is a quite a new area of research. Uh, Only the last five years or so have we had data on measured strength and morbidity and mortality, but we found the same pattern as for aerobic activity. You cut your risk of dying if you uh, uh, are stronger, and it seems to be somewhat independent of the aerobic activity. So we do the analyses and look at aerobic fitness and mortality and adjust for strength or do vice versa. They're, They're both important. And, of course, that has led then in these physical activity guidelines for the federal government to recommend two days a week of resistance training, weight uh, lifting, using resistance bands, doing more work around the house and yard if it, if it comes to that. But use your major muscle groups a couple of days a week and do some lifting. It's, it's good for you. Steve, you made a compelling case for the profound impact of physical activity on health. Is the world paying enough attention to this issue? Is there enough research being funded on it? Are government agencies addressing it enough? Well, I can answer that either yes or no, I guess. When I started my career in 1966, if I had said I am an exercise scientist, people would have laughed and rolled around. (laughs) What is that? Exercise and science. So there was essentially no attention being paid. When Professor Morris published his first work, according to my search on the web of science, during the decade of the 1950s, there were about 500 papers published in the world's literature that you find if you put in physical activity or fitness and cardiovascular health. So 500 in the 50s. In the decade just completed, it's nearly 40,000 thousand papers that come up in the world of science with such a search. So there's been an enormous and an exponential growth in this field. But of course, as a scientist who wants more funding and to do more research, we need to pay more attention. Well, of course, the, uh, areas, the areas more. where the science would suggest one thing, but public policy doesn't go in that direction. Is, is this one of those cases? I think we have not, as public policy initiatives, paid enough attention to uh, physical inactivity as um, a public health problem. 
Uh, if you were to ask me what public policy initiative would I like to see implemented, I would say put a $1 per gallon tax on gasoline and use those revenues to enhance public transport, which require people to walk a bit more at the end of the bus or the tram line, uh, make communities more walkable. So it's inconvenient to drive and park right next to your office, and uh, you, you walk a little more to get there. So things such as that. Uh, how about making stairways uh, inviting, easy to find, and attractive in public buildings instead of hidden and unattractive? Uh, I, th I think we can do some things with uh, urban design. This, again, is a very new area of research, and the story is far from complete, but the early research suggests that you can make buildings and communities more walkable and it will promote more physical activity. So I think we need to be doing a lot more of, of, of that kind of research. Well, it was interesting to me to hear you say when you were talking about what you would do if you could do anything to help correct the inactivity problem that you talked about changing the environment and uh, changing the environment in a way that encourages physical activity or even requires physical activity rather than just imploring people to go out and exercise more. Well, I, of course, I think we need good public health messages. We need to help people develop the cognitive and behavioral skills that will help them change habits. And, and this applies not only to exercise, but to diet and smoking cessation and, and anything else. I think it's a, a tragedy that in this country, we don't do a very good job of educating our population on how to go about changing health behaviors or, in fact, any habits. And there is a science, of which you're well aware, and you've uh, participated in this and added to it. Uh, we know a lot more now about how to help people change behaviors than we knew uh, 20 or 30 years ago. There's a lot more yet to learn, and, and it's not easy. <laughs> We can't just throw something out and everybody's going to become active and eat a healthful diet and stop smoking. We have to keep attacking. I think it's like uh, Grant said in the summer uh, that he became generous. I'm going to attack Richmond. I'm going to attack on all fronts, and I'm going to keep it up all summer. I think we need to do this. We need to attack on all fronts through all manner of mechanisms, clinical medicine, public health, work sites, schools, on and on. Good. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I really admire your work, and I appreciate you doing this podcast where you've taken what's a pretty complicated science and presenting it in a very straightforward way. So thanks for joining us. It's been my pleasure. So our guest today is Dr. Stephen Blair, professor at the Arnold School of Public Health at the University of South Carolina and leading world expert on the issue of exercise and health. We're also recording a podcast with Dr. Blair on the relationship of exercise to obesity. And I welcome you to visit our website at www.yalerudcenter.org for a list of the other excellent podcasts we have and a variety of resources regarding food and nutrition policy. Thank you.